Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Hear the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In solving any problem, it is essential first to identify what the problem is. Because if we don't know what the problem is, then we'll come up with an inadequate solution. And particularly if we, if we underestimate the severity and the gravity of the problem, then our solution will be inadequate. We think our car is not working well because maybe the little bit too little air in the tires but instead we have a cracked block, then if you know what that is, the engine's cracked, then, then we will not be able to fix it very well. We will be applying a Band-Aid to cancer, as it were. And that's a, a familiar expression in our society, applying Band-Aid to cancer. So the first thing we need to understand about any problem is just how serious it is. And then we'll be able to see if there is, in fact, a solution to it. And that's the same when we think about humanity. Most humans, I would say almost all humans, recognize that there is a problem with humanity, that there is something wrong with humanity. And most humans, now not all, but most humans recognize that there is a problem with me. There are a few that recognize a problem with humanity and think that there's no problem with me, but, but most most humans in their, in their most honest moments recognize that there is not only a problem with humanity out there, but there is a problem with me. There is something about me that is, is not right. It doesn't work correctly. And so if we recognize that, then we need to ask ourselves, well, what's the problem? And then what's the solution? And that's what we have in this text. And it's a text, I must warn you, it doesn't mince any words. And it may hear, hurt your feelings a bit when it describes your problem. Because I need to warn you that it is worse than you think. But because of that, it being worse than you think, the solution is more amazing than you could possibly imagine. So that's how this text goes. It talks about how terrible the problem is and then presents a solution that is beyond our wildest imagination. And Paul gets right into it. 
in his first words. And this is the, this is the problem. Verse 1, you were dead. That's it. You were dead. That's the, that's the problem. You were not sick. You were not ailing. You were dead, is what he says. And he says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. Now, this is essential to, to think about this. Because there are, when it comes to religious questions, there are basically two positions to start with. And most religious structures start with the position that humanity is sick, maybe ignorant, and so they need a teacher, or maybe misguided, and so they need a, a coach, or maybe discouraged, and so they, they need encouragement. But the scripture lays bare that, no, that's not the problem, and those are not the solutions. The problem is much, much worse. It is deadness. And this deadness is a result of trespasses and sins. And these are fairly synonymous words, probably used for, for effect here. I mean, there could be a little bit of trespasses, crossing boundaries, sins, missing the mark. But they, they both reflect the idea that there is a standard out there. And that standard is God's law. And we have not lived up to that standard. And it hasn't just been because we were somehow forgetful. No, it is a transgression. It is a willful uh, crossing the boundaries and going against God's commands to us. And Paul here was writing as a first-generation Christian to first-generation Christians. And he says to them, this is how you walked. And this is, a, this is a, a metaphor in the Old Testament and in the New Testament about living. He said, you didn't, you didn't just trip into these things occasionally. This was how you lived. This is how you walked. This is how you directed your lives. You were submerged. You were immersed. You were committed to these trespasses and sins. And sin is the cause of death. Go back to the very beginning. Our first parents received a prohibition. They received enormous freedoms and one prohibition not to eat of one tree. And the warning was, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And so we learned from the very beginning that death comes from sin. Physical death, we're all going to die physically unless the Lord comes back in our lifetime. We're all going to die physically. But also there's a, a spiritual death, if you want to call it that way. Uh, Isaiah 59.2 says, your sins have caused a separation between you and your God. And so there is a, a deadness towards God, our Creator because these sins have made a barrier. And these sins, as Paul goes on to describe them, these trespasses, are according to the course of this world. Now that word course is the word from which we get our word eon. According to the age of this world, the world age, the world system, the world course. So these sins and trespasses, the they have backing. They, they are in accordance with the way things are existing now. The world is now oriented around these sins and trespasses, and it encourages us, and it guides us along, and it carries us along in these sins and trespasses. So it's not that, that we're going against the current. No, we're going with the current of the age of this world when we walk in sins and trespasses. And not only that, he says, following 
following not only the eon of this world, but following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And this is a a very complicated uh, description of Satan, of the devil, of the enemy, of the chief, of the fallen angels. And it calls him the prince. Now, princes have what? Princes have power. Princes have authority. Princes have principalities over which they 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 dominate and it says that he is the prince of the power of the air and there's some discussion about what that air is but it looks like it's the it's this not necessarily thinking about what we take into our lungs but but this environment in which we we live under the heavens and he is also at work he he has power he has authority in this realm in which we live and he is now at work and he's at work in those whom Paul calls the sons of disobedience. And this is a this is a, a, a Hebrew expression, the sons of, and that is the sons of that which characterizes. So they're sons of disobedience in the sense that they are they are offspring of disobedience. They are characterized by disobedience. They have the DNA, if you will, of disobedience. And then Paul says something rather shocking here. He says, "We too." We too. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And what's he saying here? Now, some people think he's saying, you Gentiles, this is how you Gentiles walked, and we Jews also walked that way. That may be. But I think more than that, it still is similar to that. But I think he's saying, you, the readers, you, the readers of this letter, this is how you walked. And we also, we, Paul and, 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 and my companions, we walk the same way. So on either reading of that, it, it's quite shocking because Paul is writing to former pagans, former idolaters. And he is writing as one of the most righteous Jews of his time maybe of all time but he's saying we have this in common although our lives look very very different we had this in common that we were walking according to the passions of our flesh and this is an interesting idea isn't it that the that the most religious person on the planet can be walking according to the passions of his or her flesh and fulfilling that fleshliness by religious occupation. And so Paul is saying, we have this in common. You former pagans and I former professional superstar religious person have this in common that we were walking according to these three influences. What are these three malevolent influences? The world, the devil, and our own flesh. You see, we could, without this third, we could say, yeah, the world's the problem. That's why I'm bad, right? Because the world has corrupted me. I'm fine. The world corrupted me. Or like the comedian of, of, of my youth, the devil made me do it. Um, yeah, it's out there. I'm not the problem. The devil made me do it. But this third one is the flesh. It's, it's within us. It is who we are by nature. And Paul says, by nature, speaking of nature, by nature. And here's that expression again. Sons of disobedience. And then he calls humanity children of wrath, children of wrath. We have the DNA of wrath. We are under 
God's wrath by nature. Now, it's not the nature as God created it. It's the nature as it's been perverted. And we are under God's wrath. And he says, like the rest of mankind, no one escapes from this description. So what, what's the summary statement? What's the diagnosis of humanity? Our default condition, unless there is a radical intervention, the default condition is dead, controlled by the world, the devil, and the flesh, and under God's wrath. Now, um, some people hear this kind of thing and say, oh, the Bible is so bleak, it's so dark, it's so pessimistic. How can it be so negative? We are not that bad. Um, the, the problem with that kind of uh, approach is that uh, this is just the setup here. This is the, this is the introduction. This is preparing us for the message here. But if we don't get this part right, we won't get the second part right either. We will not appreciate the, the, the solution that God has provided. And there is, a, there is a transition here in verse 4. And we won't get how stark and how drastic and how radical this transition is unless we see it against the backdrop of the bleakness of our situation by nature. Dead, under control of malevolent forces, and under God's wrath. And then in verse 4, he says, but God. Here's the pivot, folks. But God. And he, this is, this is really a rather dramatic uh, writing here because he doesn't get to the solution until verse 5. But he sets it up beginning in verse 4. And he doesn't tell us what God did yet until verse 5. He wants to tell us why God did it first. So then we can understand what he did in the context of why he did it. So verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even, in case you forgot, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And they don't tell us what he did, but stop there. Stop there. Why did he do what he did? Because of the richness of his mercy and because of the extravagance of his great love with which he loved us. His mercy, his love. Now let that sink in because now we find out what he did, but now we see here why he did it. And it, it, it is necessary that all of the initiative for the solution had to come from God. It had to come from God. 100% of the initiative had to come from him, from his mercy, from his love. Why did it have to come from him? Because we were what? Dead. And what can dead people do? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. You see, this is the situation. If there was going to be a solution, all of it had to come from God. And it had to be a question of mercy. Why? Because mercy only enters into play when there is sin and transgression. I was, I was at a, a party once and speaking to the man next to me and I, I brought up the, the idea of sin and he said, oh, well, that's your interpretation. And he was from a Christian background and I said, excuse me, but I think sin is kind of a standard Christian doctrine. Like this is not my interpretation. And then uh, the woman across was overhearing us and she said, and I think she was trying to back him up. She said, I believe in a God of mercy. And I said, exactly. That's my point. 
You see, because mercy doesn't make sense. There's no reason for mercy if there is no offense. And I said, that's exactly what I'm trying to communicate here. Because of his great mercy, because of his love with which he loved us, dead people bring nothing to the table to offer. It had to come from God. And what did he do? Verse 5, even when we were dead, he co-made us alive with Christ. He co-raised us up with him and he co-seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I, I'm, I'm trying to bring out that there, are, there is a prefix to each of these words. And it's what our word with or our word co. So he co-raised us up. He, well, I'm sorry, he co-made us alive. He co-raised us up and he co-seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, this is a perspective on Christ's work that complements our frequent emphasis on Christ's work. Usually, if you, if you stop a Christian in the street and say, what did Christ do regarding you? And the, the normal answer would be, and it's not a wrong answer, it's a beautiful answer, it's an important answer, the Christian would likely say something like this, Christ died for me. Christ was raised from the dead for me. And what that means is, I'm here and he's there. And he took my place. And he stood in my place. And he did it for me. And I benefit from what he did. He died this death that I deserve to die under God's wrath. He, he was raised from the dead to conquer over a death that I can't conquer over it, over it. I'm a bystander and he did this for me, on my behalf, in my place. And that is a, a very significant emphasis of Scripture. But put right next to that is this other preposition here. One preposition is for me, and the other preposition is with. with. And that's the preposition here. Paul is saying that he made us alive, he co-made us alive together with Christ. He, he co-raised us up from the dead with Christ. He co-seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ. And here the emphasis is on participation. We're not just simply bystanders watching what he did in our place, representing us, but when he did these things, we participated with him. Now, how does that work? How does that work? Well, this flows out of what we saw last week. Last week, at the end of last week's uh, section, it talked about Jesus being far above all ruler, a rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And it comes out of this body imagery. If you raise up the head of a body, what else do you raise up with it? The whole body. And that's the idea. Where the head is, the whole body is. If he made the head alive, he made the body alive. If he raised up the head, he raised up the body. If he co-seated the head of all things at his right hand, he seated with him the body as well. And now, in addition to mercy and to love, we have another couple of words that come in here. In verse 6, or 5 rather, Paul interjects here after saying that we were dead. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated with us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And here he goes on to say, so that the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness, in kindness. So now we have four words. We have mercy, we have love, we have grace, and we have kindness. Why did God do what he did for us? Why did he connect us to Christ in these activities of his these events of his his being made alive, of his being raised up, of his being seated at the right hand of God? Why did he do it? The answer is this. The answer is that he did it because of his his great love. He did this because of his mercy. He did this because of his his kindness. He did this because of his grace. Now, these are sort of synonymous but they, they have emphases, don't they? When you think about mercy, what does mercy emphasize? It, it, it emphasizes the averting of punishment. To have mercy is to, to, to forego or to, to avoid punishing. Love emphasizes doing good. Grace emphasizes favor, not just all to those who are undeserving, as we often call it, but to those who are, if I can make up a word, anti-deserving. Contra-deserving, that is deserving the opposite. That's what grace is. It's not, it's not undeserved favor, it's anti-deserved favor. It's, it's favor of God toward those who deserve the opposite. And when we think of kindness, we think of gentleness and tenderness. And the, the fascinating thing here is that certainly we, if we are in Christ, are the objects of his mercy, love, grace, and kindness, but we are not the only audience. In fact, we may not even be the primary audience. We're part of the play, but there is another audience here. In verse 7, he, he did all this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, who's the audience? We know the time frame. It's in the coming ages. But, but who's the audience? Well, if we look back to last week, it looks like the audience are those rulers, authorities, powers, dominions, and anyone else out there, any other name that has been named. So there's an audience out there. There is a, there is a host of beings out there, and they are the audience. And we are part of the play. And the idea is that in the coming generations that they can watch this play over and over. And when, when one ruler is asking a, a principality or a dominion and saying, tell me about God, what's he like? And the other could say, if we can use a little imagination here, have you not seen the play? Have you not seen the show? Well, well, roll it, Gabriel. We show this, show this once again. If, if if you want to see what God is like, show this this once again. This this play, and what's this play about? It's about God's love. It's about His mercy. It's about His grace. It's about His kindness. And then, and then the other, the ruler might say to the first, and say, "Well, well, to whom? To whom did He show this?" And the answer is, the children of wrath. To the sons of disobedience. To the, the rebellious sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And the first, perhaps incredulous, might say, are, are you serious? 
to them? You mean on that tiny little speck of rock that floats around in the universe to them? Not to us, the great principalities and the rulers and the powers that dominate the the heavenly places? No, no, no. To them. Why to them? Well, they're the ones made to look like God. They're, They're his image. And he loves them. And even when they went astray, he, he took a radical step to become one of them, something he's never done with any other created being, to become one of them and to, to hitch them to himself in their humanity so that when his humanity was raised from the dead, they were raised. When his humanity was, was raised to God's right hand and seated there, they were raised with him. And one of these celestial beings may say, no, you're making this up. There's no way. Seriously? He says, watch the play. Watch it. This is not fiction. It really, really happened. So we get to be, we get to be actors in that play so that people can look at us and say, them? God had such mercy on them? God had such grace towards them? Such love and kindness toward them. Yes, towards them in Christ Jesus. So that all of created beings might praise God. Not only we who are recipients of all these benefits, but all created beings might praise God for his mercy and love and grace and kindness. Now, Paul had interjected in verse 5. He's like sort of like the kid in the the classroom that has the answer and he just can't wait and he blurts it out in verse 5. Is he saying, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Oh, 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 by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. So he he, he interrupts himself and and blurts out the answer here. And then he comes back to it in verses 8, 9, and 10 and says, oh yeah, the answer I blurted out. uh, Let me explain that a bit more. I want to talk to you about this grace idea. And here he, he gives this fuller explanation. And it, it's, it's not necessarily unique, but it is unusual in its emphasis. And this is an emphasis that we see all through Ephesians. And that is that salvation has happened. It says here, for by grace you have been saved. Usually when you read Paul's letter, salvation is future. It's the end game. It's, it's, it's our goal. It's where we're going. Sometimes it's conceived of as present, but here it's conceived of as a completed action. And you see that all through Ephesians, that that we're already, we've already received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We are already seated with Christ at the right hand of God. There is an all-readiness of of Ephesians. And that complements others of his letter, whereas letters where he's talking about what's, what's still coming. But there is an emphasis all through Ephesians. This is a done deal. This is finished. You have been saved. And the tense of this is you have been saved and you will remain saved for all of eternity. And the question is how? And he says, by grace. By God's anti-merited favor. By God's kindness and mercy toward us. By grace, you have been saved. And here, um, this is grace toward us, and it's received. Now, here we finally have the instrument. How did we get it? 
And why do some persons have this this grace and other persons don't have this grace? Why are are some of these 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 vessels of wrath rescued from that? Why are some of these children of disobedience adopted into God's family? How does that happen? What is the what is the thing in their lives that happens? And the answer is faith. By grace, you have been saved through faith, not by faith, but through the instrumentality of faith. That is, we receive grace by faith in Jesus. And then just to make sure we got this, Paul goes on with some affirmations and some negations. He says positively some things and he says negatively he denies other things. By grace you have been saved through faith. And if it's not clear enough, I want you to know this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. What is not your own doing? Salvation by grace through faith is not your own doing. Why is it not your own doing? Why can it not be your own doing? What was our condition? We were dead. What can dead people do? Nothing. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's free to you. It is costly to him and free to you. Not as a result of works, which is another way of saying not your own doing. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. If it is by grace, if it is through faith, if it is not of our doing, if it is a gift of God, if it is not a result of our works, of course there's nothing for us to boast about. We we didn't do anything. And um, you you can think about somebody who who has died and gets resuscitated by by medical means, you know, applying those paddles or whatever they do to, to bring someone back to life and then then you're talking to that person later and you're saying, good job. Way to go. So you died and now you're alive. Yeah, tell me how you did it. I say, what do you mean? I, I didn't do anything. I was lying there. My heart was not beating. My lungs were not, were not pumping. My brain waves were not working. What do you mean? What did I do? I didn't do anything. Don't give me a high five. Go, go, go talk to the emergency medical technician. And ask him what he did. Because I was dead. I didn't do anything. It was all the work of another. And faith is the perfect instrument for receiving God's grace. Because it affirms and protects the principle of grace. Uh, Paul argues in Romans like this. Romans chapter 4. He says the the instrument of, of faith protects the principle of grace. He says in verse 16 of chapter 4 of Romans, this is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace. You see, without the instrumentality of faith, the principle of grace could be damaged. Because the thing about faith is, is that it doesn't contribute anything. Faith is like an empty vessel. It receives It doesn't add to it doesn't contribute anything. That's why faith is the perfect instrument to receive God's grace. Faith also is the result of being made alive. This is important. Faith is the result of being made alive. It's not the cause of being made alive. Once again, um, if I say to a dead person, believe in Jesus. How effective will that exhortation be? Can't do it, right? 
But what if I say to a dead person, believe in Jesus, and God makes that person alive in order to be able to believe in Jesus? Now there's a possibility of believing in Jesus. So you see that even faith is, is the result of being made alive, not the cause thereof. Faith is the gift of God. Philippians 1.29 says, it has been granted to you, it has been graced to you to believe in Jesus. And faith is also not a work of merit, but it is trusting Christ's works of merit. That's why faith, it, 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 it uh, protects it protects the principle of grace. Now, in anticipation of a very good question, and in anticipation of chapters 3 through 6, Paul gives a little preview of what's coming in verse 10. And, and the very good question, and I have heard this time and time again, and I love when people answer, ask me this question, because Philippians, or Ephesians 2, 8, 9 if I just have a, a, a 30 seconds or, or a minute or two to, to talk about the gospel, I will, I will often go to these verses. Because most people have this default idea that I must do something in order to gain eternal life, in order to gain forgiveness. And so I go right to this and say, no, it's, it's by faith in Jesus because Jesus did this. He died and rose. And because it's, it's by faith, it's not a result of works. It's a gift of God. And so I go right to this. And I love it. When they ask me, oh, so good works don't matter? I love it because that means they got it. They got the idea of just how free this, this idea of God's grace is. But good works do matter. Good works do matter. And that's what Paul says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. The only other time that, play, that word appears in the New Testament is in Romans chapter 1 where it's talking about God's creation, his workmanship. So we are his workmanship, his new creation, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what do we have here? We have this image of creation, new creation, that God has remade humanity. He has started over in Christ Jesus, remade humanity. And do you remember in the beginning when God created humans, what did he give them to do? Work. He told them to get to work because he had made them. He said, this is all yours. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue it, tend the garden, guard it, make things grow, do the good works that I have already prepared and built into creation for you. And he says the same thing to us. We are God's workmanship recreated to do good works. Now, this text, oh, by the way, uh, yeah, this text, I don't know if you notice here, it, it, it begins and ends at the same place. In verse 2, it says, in which you once walked, and then it ends by saying, God prepared these good works beforehand that we should, what? Walk. So basically, this is a transformation of our walking. At the beginning, we're walking in disobedience, walking in in rebellion, we're walking in sin. And at the end of it, we're walking in the good works that God has prepared for us to do. A good summary of the place of works in the Christian life is talking about prepositions. And it's not by, but for. Not by, but for. Because in verse 8, he says not, no, verse 9, not as a result, not by works. And then in verse 10, but for Good works. One of the hard things for those of us who tried to learn Spanish is the difference between the prepositions por and para. 
And you hear English speakers, we mess these up all the time, por and para. And they both are translated into English by for. And so that's what makes it a little more difficult. But it, they can be translated other ways. But I love the way the Spanish has this. It says it's not por obras, but para obras. It's not because of works. It is unto works. You see, this is the goal. The, the, the good works don't get us there. The salvation gets us to the good works. Not por, but para. Not by, but unto. Okay, recap. What's our problem? Threefold. Deadness, being controlled by the world, the devil, and the flesh, and under God's wrath. That's where we start. Where do we end? We end with a solution to those three problems. Problem number one, deadness. He made us alive together with Christ. Under the powers of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, last week we saw that Christ, God has put every every power, every authority, every dominion under Christ's feet. And he's freed us from those. And what about under God's wrath? No longer under God's wrath. Because Christ fell under God's wrath and took that wrath away from us forever. That's the problem. And this is the great solution. Let's pray. Our God, we're troubled when we see the description of humanity here. But against this bleak, dark backdrop, your mercy, love, grace, and kindness show all the more brightly. And I pray that we would understand just how deep and severe the problem was so that we might marvel at your solution in Christ Jesus. And Father, although this text doesn't tell us to do anything, I pray that, having heard this, that we would all have that one thing we need, which is a gift from you, but it needs to be a response from us, that we would have faith in Jesus and so receive your grace. 